I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. And massive congratulations to my co-host, who from tomorrow is a published author. Hola. <laughs> very, very, very nervous. You shouldn't be nervous, but I do understand it is a very nerve-wracking week. But I just wanted to say, not as your podcast co-host but one of your best mates I read Pandora's essays on modern life in two sittings and I've got to be totally honest I don't normally read essays they're not normally my thing and as we know I have absolutely zero interest in modern life and I'm obsessed with the past um but (laughs) that being said I loved this collection I found them so reassuring and funny and sharp and curious and really well researched with a really diverse range of writers and thinkers incorporated into the conversation and it was just generally a delight. And I'm not just saying that because I'm featured in it. So sorry to sound like your stage mom, Pandora, but uh, to our listeners, if you want rational, intelligent, reasonable commentary on a plethora of our anxieties, then you should buy How Do We Know We're Doing It Right tomorrow. End of paid partnership with Dolly Alderton. (laughs) This week's episode is sponsored by Dolly Alderton and her friendship. Thanks very much to Dolly Alderton. (laughs) I'd pay for that. I'd pay for that. (laughs) Now listen, I've got a delightful start for you, which is Esther Ranson reflecting on her 80th birthday in lockdown. And this is the kind of thing that I can imagine you doing. She writes... On my 80th birthday last month, I dived out of bed and ran around the garden stark naked. I highly recommend it. The early morning breeze wafts around bits of you that are normally enclosed and it just feels lovely. It was my personal protest. No one's going to ask me to pose for Playboy, but I feel very happy in this 80-year-old body, especially jumping around wearing nothing but a chiffon hat. Oh, I love that. I'm also very interested... (laughs) In what a chiffon hat is. <laughs> I think it's like a like a sort of full-on like wedding hat, right? Right. Chiffon. Well, I love that account and that makes me love Esther Ranson. I saw a clip online this week that I loved that I wanted to tell you about, which is Throwback Thursday, Richard Blackwood. Um, it must be in the late 90s or early millennium, hosting a live music programme where I think Nina Simone has just performed... And there is this brilliant exchange after she's done. And out of the new wave, we've got uh, bands out there, you've got the Backstreet Boys, you've got TLC, all the new groups. Who do you admire out of the new groups that are out there today? I don't. Right. Or inspiring straight-talking from the high priestess of soul there. 
Speaking of soul, I have found a word that speaks to my soul this week. It is a Japanese word which has no direct English translation. Kuchi sabishe, which means eating not because you are hungry, but because you have a lonely mouth. And I think that's quite a key part of quarantine for so many people. There's nothing worse than a lonely mouth, a sad little lonely mouth. Do you know what? Not only is that just a very pleasing word, it's also quite profound because there is such a thing as having oral fixation, which is having a lonely mouth, I think, basically. Drawing comfort from things being in your mouth. (laughs) I know that this is going to set off a load of fucking seaside postcard humour from you, Pandora. Seaside postcard. (laughs) So it is an actual thing, apparently, where the people who get comfort from sucking their thumb apparently are often the same adults who smoke a lot or who eat too much. This, I think, also, basically what that means is you have, like, you have a a craving so that it can also be used for needing a cigarette as well. Yeah. I was only yeah. informed of this word recently, but I did a little dig and it turns out there's a Huffington Post article from late May which delves into this and it does include smoking in the kind of other... Uh, right. ...descriptions. It says that the closest word in English is peckish... But that is just not the same. No. No, I you love could, that. You could, have a, you could have a completely socialised mouth and still be peckish. Also, there is something to be said about, I did give up smoking, but I've taken it back up during lockdown. And there is something about, when I first gave up smoking, there was something that felt like I was saying goodbye to a friend. There's some sort of sense of having company, I think, for some people which is obviously bad and smoking is very bad and I'm not encouraging smoking. But I do think that it is very interesting because the same can be said of people who comfort eat, can't it? That it's something that it's like, almost, it feels almost like company. I think that a lot of those things that we do for um, comfort or distraction come from a place of like sort of existential loneliness, don't they? Not the loneliness yeah. that like hanging out with a friend could fix but the loneliness when you feel it sort of deep within you do you feel lonely when you sell one of your slogan cushions on ebay we always find a way of circling back to the slogan cushions it's actually been a really long time since i did that biggest regret of my life was telling you about the slogan cushions was Um, it a bigger regret telling me about it or buying it it was telling me wasn't it i don't think you regret buying it I have another mouth-related word for you that I think you might like, which is tansmore, a Danish word translating as tooth butter, meaning when there is so much butter on your bread that you leave teeth bite marks in the sort of mountain of butter. Do you know know what that is? (laughs) That sounds like something my toddler does daily. (laughs) The bread is just a companion piece to the butter. The butter is yeah. The you know, meal. do you know what I mean? It's like when you bite into it and then you look, and it's like it looks like the White Cliffs of Dover <laughs> because yes. you spread it so thick and high. So anyway, totally. I love that word as well, Dolly. You won't believe what I tucked into briefly. I might add, but what I tucked into this week, we mentioned it a little while ago. It, we mentioned it was coming, but it was being commissioned a little while ago. What is it? 
Celebrity Snoop Dogs. It's here already. It's Channel here. Four. Oh my God, tell me everything. Unfortunately, it is a little dull. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have seen that coming? <laughs> I think to have a dog wearing a camera going round a house can't really sustain a whole half an hour. So who are they, so is it like behind the key through the keyhole? Do you have to guess who the the celebrity is? Yes, but the narrator or the, the houses are quite modern. There's not a lot of clues and the narrator is like definitely like stumped of what, you know, I've still got no idea. Have you? Oh, up we go up the stairs. Still not sure. What about you? So it's quite a long time to sustain that. And I don't want to give any spoilers. I don't want to give away who the celebrities are. I did just fast forward to find out who they belong to. And what time is this programme on? I actually watched it on catch up. (laughs) I'd be interested to know if they've just stuck it in a graveyard slot or whether this is now like the new normal, the new primetime content we can expect for the next God knows how long. I normally normally quite enjoy seeing into people's houses. I think what would have been probably a bit more interesting, and maybe they'll do this in future episodes, but again, it just depends on who would let a camera into their house and their wardrobe. So I guess it depends on who's necessarily willing to do that. Um, But it would be really fun if it was like in a house that was just absolutely overflowing with stuff. Yeah. Rather than a very neat and tidy house. It's all quite bare bones. Yeah. And do you meet the dog? Do they turn the camera around onto the dog? Yeah, you see, you you meet the dog at the beginning, like, trotting around its neighbourhood. And then it puts on its, well, someone else puts a camera harness on it. Yeah. And then you just follow it, sort of, padding around the house, the whole house. But also you'd never guess whose house it is. I mean, I did I did suspect that there might be a reality star in there. But the other thing is now I'm thinking logistically is that when you're doing through the keyhole, you're going into cupboards and you're looking at surfaces and you're, go, you're at all different levels. But if you've got a small dog, if you've just got a terrier, that is going to be very one note, isn't it? Oh, because no, basically the- what you get is carpet and maybe a bit of ceiling. No, the dog opens the fridge and uh, the wardrobes um, and all the drawers. You get to see in all the drawers. Are you joking? <laughs> yes, I'm joking. <laughs> and I like We've that talked you about me. this show for too long. <laughs> so that is Celebrity Snoop Dogs. It's on Channel 4 now. Love to hear your thoughts. In slightly more serious news, I wanted to share a petition this week in regards to free parking being taken away from the NHS staff. So they actually haven't always had parking. It was something that was introduced in the pandemic while they were, while the NHS were obviously going above and beyond trying to keep as many people healthy as possible. Um, So it was introduced then, but it hasn't actually always been, it hasn't actually always been free. However, most of us, I think, or a lot of us hoped that it would be kept on as a sort of legacy for all that the NHS staff had done over the pandemic. And also because (laughs) there'd been a lot of dialogue around how will we ever repay them? And, Mm. you know, amidst all of our clap for carers, I think something very pragmatic that was being talked about is that if, if we're thinking of practical ways to thank our carers, then along with biscuits in the staff room and paid overtime and 
enforced breaks, free parking seemed a pretty good one. And I think it does sort of make a bit of a mockery of clap for carers that we'll go out there and do that, but we won't, you know, nothing will be implemented that will actually really change your experience of work. And I don't know if you saw, Dol, but Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson came to blows over this. And I'm mentioning it only because the language made me laugh so much. It got so panto. Uh, Boris Johnson told Keir Starmer to take his latest bandwagon and park it for free somewhere else, uh, calling him Captain Hindsight. (laughs) Oh, for God's sake. (laughs) Really went with the parking metaphor. Um, But anyway, yeah, so Matt Hancock promised at the start of the outbreak that ministers will cover the costs of hospital car parking for NHS staff who were going above and beyond every day. The Department of Health has now said that the scheme cannot continue indefinitely and only key patient groups and staff Mm. in certain circumstances will be able to park for free. So if you want to sign the petition, it's got an aim of half a million signatures and it's got over 330,000 already. So it's well on its way. And I will share the link to the change.org petition in our show notes and I'll pop it up on Twitter as well. While we're on the subject of the NHS, we had a lot of love for our Adam Kay interview last week. Thank you so much for everyone who emailed us. We received this message from an American listener. I'm a Californian, but two years ago, I was living in Scotland, attending the University of Edinburgh for my master's. While there, I came to terms with the fact that I had an eating disorder. Had I been home in the US when I came to this realisation, I don't know what I would have done. While I'm fortunate in that I had good health insurance through my parents, the idea of finding treatment that accepted my insurance is a hurdle that feels unimaginable when your world feels like it's completely fallen apart. However, living in Scotland at the time gave me access to the NHS where those hurdles simply didn't exist. I had a clear path to treatment and each NHS employee I interacted with was thorough, helpful and extremely kind. The US healthcare system is built on the barriers that Adam Kay was cautioning against. Even as the pandemic rages through the US, the right to healthcare is still a subject of debate, as if there's a reasonable argument for people having to bankrupt themselves for life-saving treatment. The NHS saved my life and I will be forever grateful for it. I found it truly heartwarming to see the videos of everyone clapping for them during the pandemic and I'm so happy that people are recognising them. I can't wait to read this book and I hope more Americans who may be hesitant about Medicare for All will pick it up as well. I think it's really important to articulate because it's so unimaginable to us because as Adam said last week because we're not used to being presented with a medical bill when we leave an NHS hospital, I think it's really important to imagine what this other type of healthcare system could be. And the fact that she said, you know, in this example, that this woman is going through the physical and mental toil of an eating disorder, that is the last moment in your life that you want to be going through the laborious logistics of legitimising your right to healthcare. Like, you know, the form filling and the bureaucracy of it she just articulated it so well that, you know, it is when you're in no state of mind or in no sort of robust health that you want to be dealing with all that stuff. But that's the reality if if you're in America. In that moment of being on your knees, that's when that's required of you. It's kind of unthinkable. It's just awful that at that moment of intense health scare and emotional load that you are you know, having to ferret around in your wallet. We are so lucky not to know that reality. We really are. 
And actually something Adam said last week, which sadly we had to cut out because we talked for so long and we had to condense the interview. But an anecdote that he told me is that he was in America once and he uh, was involved in a minor accident, but he he really, really hurt his hand and he had to go to hospital and he had to have a procedure. And he said the thing that really stays with him is that at every turn, he was presented with an option for, right, so we probably should do this to the bone, but just to let you know, if we do do this to the bone, it's going to be surplus £1,500. We probably should, you know, follow up with this examination, but if you have this x-ray, it will be this amount of pounds. And he said, what's really scary is when that's presented to you as an option and you know that it's your livelihood and your money and you know what's in your account, it was this mad thing that he had of like, well... Do I really need to? You know, whereas here we have this luxury of, of that choice being taken away from us. We, we just we hand over that trust and that decision making to people who know best and who make the decisions for us on the whole. And how utterly galling for doctors over there to be having to do kind of cut price care, you know, not to be mm. able to do their best work as like highly exactly. skilled operatives. I also loved this email from another listener not to do with the NHS, but to do with Barbara Streisand. I thought you might be interested to know that there is a brilliant one-man play by Jonathan Tollins about the shopping centre in Barbara Streisand's basement called Buyer and Seller. For pun fans, that seller is in basement. It's written from the point of view of a man employed to work as a fake shop assistant should Barbara decide to visit and buy something. I mean, that's... I don't care how long that is. One hour in the theatre, two hours in the theatre, three hours in the theatre. I'm there. Does she have fake shop assistants that work there? Yeah. Does she actually? I thought that it was just an empty... No, I'm pretty sure I've read that there are shop assistants, fake shop assistants. Or do you think that they work otherwise on her staff and when she wants to go down to the shop she rings a little bell and the cleaner or the cook just whips on a, like a tabard and goes down to the sweet shoppy i'd say so i'd say so yeah that's what i that's what i would guess the problem is the more we talk about this story the more questions i have <laughs> it can't be solved none of it can be solved <laughs> can only be solved by interviewing barbara streisand <sighs> well let's put her on the list Also in the mailbag this week is a network that I wanted to flag called City Girl Network. And the reason I wanted to flag it is we get so many emails from our listeners who are struggling to make friends in a new city or in their city. And they're just not, you know, connecting with people at work or uh, they're feeling really lonely. So I was so pleased to read about this uh, network Pippa, its founder, emailed us to say, City Girl Network is a social network helping women to find friends, housemates, travel companions and business connections in their city. We oversee busy Facebook groups, host events to bring the community together, online now but offline when there's not a pandemic, and have an online magazine. We're completely free to join. I started the City Girl Network in Brighton in 2016 as a direct result of my own disappointing reality that making friends as an adult is really hard. It became obvious very quickly that I was not alone in feeling like that, as you know from your Ask the Hilo segments. Over the years, we've grown to 14 cities. Brighton, London, Bristol, Manchester, Birmingham, Liverpool, Newcastle, Bath, Chester, Edinburgh, Glasgow, LA, San Francisco and Berlin. 
We have over 20,000 women in our Facebook groups who are all looking to build their own circles and evolve their lives in some ways. Some city girls have just moved to the city, some have lived there their whole lives and some are simply looking for more enrichment in their lives. There are groups of single girls that go out on the pool as well as book clubs, walking groups and all sorts of interest groups. Our community teams also work closely with members who've been victims of sexual harassment and domestic violence. We've helped a scarily high number of women to escape dangerous living situations and house them in the spare rooms of city girls. You can find out more at citygirlnetwork.com. Isn't that a brilliant idea? That is really brilliant. Celebrity Twitter has been agog this week as Will Smith and his wife Jada Pinkett Smith went deep into the details of their estranged and then their reunited marriage. So they did this on Jada Has a Facebook show, which actually a large number of people I know are completely obsessed with. It's called Red Table. And she has really honest 10 minute conversations. She's had one with um, Willow Smith, her, her daughter, about how she felt like she was smoking too much weed. So it's not just something she does with like you know other celeb friends she does it with her family and this came around what what is a facebook show so it's just an interview that she puts on her facebook channels well facebook have their own original content now they're like a streaming platform as well do they yeah yeah they make their own content like sort of netflix and so do other celeb do other celebrities do this have have their own programs on facebook I actually don't know if other celebrities do. Hers has been going for a little while and I think is really popular. And this particular one was because there were lots of rumours going around about her having an affair. And this, I have to say, I found this fascinating as someone who didn't have a clue what was going on. I didn't know about the story before I watched it. I just saw it. Uh, that there were tons of like news, you know, every website I checked, something seemed to be a story about them. So I, I watched the link and it was, it then transpired that that is why they were addressing it. But it was fascinating to see two celebrities talk so candidly or perhaps faux candidly, we'll never know. But they talked all about how they'd actually separated four years ago and she'd gone on to have a relationship and then they'd come back together and they talked about how uh, Will never thought he was going to take her back and she talked about how she just needed to find herself, that she had been very emotionally codependent and, um, I mean, even if it's faux candid, still found it fascinating. You just so rarely get to see famous people talking about their marriage. But why Why would they do that, do you think? Why would they... Do you think it's that they wanted <sighs> I don't know. to take I mean, control of it if everyone was sort of speculating? Yes, That must probably. be the only reason, surely. Why would you or, talk about your marriage like that? Or you're just, you just think it would be, like, fun and you don't give a shit? Maybe. I know that's quite hard to imagine because I can't think of anything worse than going onto Facebook and airing all of the dirty laundry between me and my husband. Like, as in, like, I actually can't think of anything worse. I know. But I wonder if they found it quite cathartic or they don't care or it's a very Hollywood reclaim of the narrative and it's it's doing that thing which happens apparently quite a lot behind the scenes where they give a bit of information as a sort of trade-off for something else or mm. to um, stop anyone else making money from it. That's what the Kardashians do, don't they? They stop anyone making money from stories about them by talking about it on their show. Mm. And I totally understand that. I totally understand how, you know, stressful and upsetting and what a sort of existential headfuck it must be to have people kind of trading lies about you under the guise of 
of inf- you know fact and information so I understand why you would want to go through that ordeal of exposing yourself just to feel like it was more on your terms but oh, I don't know that does feel quite extreme it it was riveting to watch I I used to be much more interested in celebrity gossip and I now don't really know what's going on so much and I don't really engage with it but I did find it really interesting to watch just as someone that didn't have a clue I'll, I'll share the link in the show notes for anyone else curious oh my God, their kids must be so cringed out I think that because they've done lots of red tables before, I I don't know if they are. They seem to have like a very healthy sort of open dynamic. But also their kids have grown up in the public eye as well. It's not the same as, it's not like your mum and dad going and doing a red table. <laughs> maybe I just, maybe I just need to take the stick out of my arse. Maybe I'm just being really closed minded about the whole thing. Well done then. <laughs> on another celebrity note that I found quite interesting there's also been a lot of shocked opinion pieces around Brooklyn Beckham getting engaged age 21 I suppose that is very young but I, do, I found it interesting how that's the new controversy you know there's like you can't possibly know yourself at 21 and young love is doomed young marriage equals divorce Sometimes I'm sure that's true, but I'm sure that some 21 year olds know themselves quite well. It's, it's quite interesting how the taboo's now been flipped, hasn't it? I've had a few people recently actually be surprised that I got married before the age of 30. Child bride. Well, <laughs> you know, maybe we're now, as we become more accepting of things happening at a later stage, we're becoming more skeptical of people who want to do them at a young stage. It's a bit sad. It's a push and pull, really, isn't it? Gain one. Yeah, I, I wish we could just be chill about what anyone wants to do. But I have to say, I think I do think it's encouraging. I think that that generation is so much more open minded about, you know, how how we conduct our love lives and sexuality. And I, I think that's just definitely was woefully missing from my adolescence and young adulthood I, I really just thought there was only kind of you know there was very limited options for for what your your kind of love life and sex life could look like so actually I think the kind of shock around it it is strangely quite encouraging I have noticed though that now getting married very young has become like the new rebellion yeah because it's becoming less common Mm. And so now it's almost like rad. <laughs> also, you know, not to psychoanalyze Brooklyn Beckham, but we do either replicate or work in opposition to our parents and their triumphs and mistakes. And his parents probably got married around the same time, didn't they? I think they got married mid 20s. Yeah, they were definitely young. Really young. So, you know, maybe there's a correlation there. Celebrity years are a bit like dog years as well, I think. They live life at such a fast pace. One more celebrity note. There is an absolutely fascinating, and I really do mean fascinating, interview with Tandy Newton on Vulture's website. Vulture is a part of New York magazine, and it's conducted by the writer E. Alex Jung. It's so interesting to hear Tandy Newton, who is now 47, reflecting on a 
career which spans more than three decades. She started acting and flirting when she was 16 um, without any kind of Hollywood rose-tintedness. It is so extremely candid. Mm, I found it so invigorating to read. I can't remember reading a female celebrity profile that was that, that had that much candor and fearlessness. It's totally gives no fucks, like zero fucks given. A Mm. quote which really sums up the place she's at, I think, when giving the interview is this. So careful what you do, everybody, because you might find yourself fucking over a little brown girl at the beginning of a career when no one knows who she is and no one gives a fuck. She might turn out to be Tandy Newton. It's such a sharp, reflective, ruthlessly honest interview she talks about the effects of that controversial scene in crash where a white police officer played by matt Dillon, arrests her and her partner and then sexually assaults her character in front of her partner later he rescues her from a burning car and saves her life a plot line that was believed to be a redemption arc for Dillon's character And it's sort of, it's really interesting now, isn't it? Like that film would not have got made as it was made then. And she said then she felt very uncomfortable about it. And there was an awful account in the interview where she said that the director, I'm paraphrasing what she said, that the director said to the actor in that horrible scene, I want you to feel like you can really go there. But he didn't say that to Tandy. And... So she was left feeling incredibly shocked and violated and confused because she had not realised that that was what the script implied. And that sort of becomes actually a leitmotif for the interview. There's several occasions where it becomes clear that she just hasn't been kept in the same loop as everyone else. Another example of that, actually, is when she was meant to do Charlie's Angels. Did you know she was meant to be in Charlie's Angels? No, no. And she pulled out of the last minute, which is really interesting because, of course, a very commercial A-list movie would have had a massive impact on her career. And she pulled out because, and she relays this astonishing story that she had with the head of the studio, Amy Pascal, who instantly denies this. She's quoted in the piece as denying it. And so she quotes this conversation and she says it's what led her to to pull out of the role just days before a US Vogue shoot of The Three Angels. And she says, I had a meeting with the head of the studio and she said, look, I don't mean to be politically incorrect, but the character as written and you playing the role, I just feel like we've got to make sure that it's believable. I was like, what do you mean? What changes would you have to make? She's like, well, you know, the character as written, she's been to university and she's educated. I'm like, I've been to university. I went to Cambridge. She went, yeah, but you're different. She's like, maybe there could be a scene where you're in a bar and she gets up on a table and starts shaking her booty. She's basically reeling off these stereotypes of how to be more convincing as a black character. Everything she said, I was like, nah, I wouldn't do that. And she's like, yeah, but you're different. You're different. It's just so infuriating as an actor. It must be so, so upsetting and infuriating. And I can't imagine what it must have been like to pull out of your role. When was Charlie's Angels made? I would say probably 15 years ago. So in mm. her early 30s, and she's got this, you know, this role that would have properly solidified her in the A-list, and but more importantly, 
afforded her really brilliant roles and made her lots of money, security for her family, you know, all those things that like a massive role like that would come with. And she has to pull out because she feels uncomfortable about what she might be forced to portray as a black character on screen. Like she's doing that not just for herself, but because she doesn't want to be part of a very narrow-minded portrayal of what a successful black woman is or what a black woman on screen has to be like. He's a brilliant profiler, E. Alex Jung. Another recent profile of his with Michaela Cole has also been doing the rounds while I May Destroy You continues his reign as most discussed drama of the summer. Oh, I read that and I loved it. The payoff, the final paragraph of that interview with Michaela Cole made me cry. It's really, 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 really good, that interview. My favourite interview I've read with her so far. I'm not going to read it aloud because you have to get there by reading the linear story of that piece of journalism, I think. But it's a very well-earned, beautiful crescendo of an ending. And I'll link to that in the show notes. Not celebrity news, but equally as exciting. Something else that I've seen online that I want to talk about in today's episode is a new organisation called Black Agents and Editors Group, founded by Marianne Tatepo, who is a commissioning editor at Ebury. Marianne has said, BAE is a publishing community for people of African descent currently working in editorial or agenting roles in the UK. It is a currently digital space for us to celebrate our shared cultural interests, socialise and support each other at every stage of our careers. They're also starting a mentoring programme where Afro-descendant applicants can learn about the industry and get advice on interviews and applications from people from similar backgrounds to their own. I know that so many of our listeners are aspiring writers. We get so many emails about writing and how to get into writing or listeners who aspire to work in the publishing industry. And as we know, there is such a lack of diversity, both in authors being published and those who are being hired to publish. So if you're a black author or editor or a black writer, you can find out more about the network and its mentoring plans by visiting blackagentsandeditors.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. For the high-low comes from Go Climate. Go Climate is a social company with the purpose of making it easier to start living a climate-neutral life. Climate neutrality, for those who aren't familiar with the term, means reducing your CO2 emissions to slow down the biggest threat to the planet as a whole, which is, of course, climate change. Go Climate's main service is a monthly subscription to offset your individual carbon footprint through hand-picked certified climate projects. You can help the transition into a sustainable society and be a part of the solution by doing something small but meaningful like this. Go Climate strives to do this in the most effective and sustainable way possible, all while using 100% financial transparency so that you can see exactly how your money is spent. 
The registration and calculation process is really easy and only takes a couple of minutes with data relevant to your specific country. Signing up with Go Climate is a useful start in making change or maintaining a climate-friendly lifestyle. Go to www.goclimate.com. Thanks very much to Go Climate. reading this week dolly i've been reading nick hornby's upcoming novel just like you i've got about 100 pages left of it and it's one of those books where i am so looking forward to bedtime tonight so i can tuck myself in with a three mint tea and uh enjoy the last 100 pages i was so excited to read this as i adore nick hornby's books and films and i've really enjoyed this story it's an unlikely romance which is underpinned by pressing themes of class, race, community and ageing. And it's set a few years back with the EU referendum as its kind of backdrop, which makes it all sound quite serious, which it's not. It is, it's exploring serious things, but it's definitely a romantic comedy. It's about a woman called Lucy who is divorced, middle class. She's a mother of two. She's a white liberal secondary school teacher in her 40s. And Joseph, who is in his early 20s, a single mixed race working class man who works a number of jobs to be able to support himself and his dreams of becoming a musician. The two of them meet when Lucy asks Joseph to babysit her two sons. I'm not going to say much more than that as I don't want to give too much away. But just like all Nick Hornby's books, he uses such everyday scenarios and and relatable situations to tell a story of a big emotional theme which is what does it mean to be compatible with someone why are we attracted to each other what makes a successful relationship and these are just all things that I'm always fascinated to read about Um, I wanted to read one of my favorite passages from the book which is when Lucy and Joseph first start their fling at the start the sex was happy but not good in the old Cosmo sense Joseph was too eager and she was too reliant on previous habits and routines. She didn't pretend that something had happened when it hadn't and eventually Joseph wanted to know if there was a way of making it happen. He learned quickly and within a few days or nights or dates or whatever, they had entered a golden age. But is it enough? Lucy kept asking herself. Enough for what? She answered. The answer always came quickly too, as if she wanted to shut down all doubts. She was happy, in a bubble, And the only reason to pop it was on the grounds that bubbles were not real life. But bubbles made life tolerable and the trick was to blow as many as possible. There were new baby bubbles and honeymoon bubbles and success at work bubbles and new friends bubbles and great holiday bubbles and even tiny TV series bubbles, dinner bubbles, party bubbles. They all burst without intervention and then it was a matter of getting through to the next one. Life hadn't been fizzy for a while. It had been hard. Isn't that a lovely way of looking at life? That we just, there there are these moments of life like relief, which might not be permanent, but they're to be enjoyed anyway. And there's always one round the corner, whether it be small or big. We're talking about slightly different types of bubbles at the moment, aren't we? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Those are the bubbles. Those are the bubbles of old. I like the sound of those bubbles. The fun bubbles. Yeah. I think that's yeah. a really beautiful way of putting it, though. We we need those bubbles. It's not um, it's not foolish. It's it's part of hope. It's part of what keeps you 
thrusting forward, I think, isn't it? Those bubbles. Definitely. And I like the idea that that's not an absence of reality. It's a part of reality. So that's the new Nick Hornby book, Just Like You, which I'm really, really enjoying. That's out in September. Panda, tell me what you've been reading. I've been enjoying a really interesting series on the Guardian US website about being child-free, which is going on at the moment. They've shared six articles in the last week that are first-person stories, and they're all about why the author has chosen not to have children. Why I don't have a child, solitude doesn't scare me. Why I don't have a child, my climate crisis anxiety. Why I don't have a child, society isn't built for motherhood. Why I don't have a child, I cherish my freedom. Why I don't have a child, I don't have enough money. And I was expected to have kids, five people who defied cultural norms. How fascinating as a as a list of reasons to explore, because those are the main reasons that that I've heard when I when I speak to people who say that they don't want to have children. And they're all very, very different and all equally as valid. Totally. Cherishing your freedom is very different to not having enough money to mm. have children. The series has been received with quite a lot of discomfort, which I think is perhaps revealing in the way that we deal with the motherhood versus child-free conversation, which is that one status diminishes the value of the other. I'm not sure why someone choosing not to have children should threaten your choice to have children. I've been really trying to think about it while reading these pieces in the series. And the only thing I can think is that it's born of a fear that if your friends make that choice, or if the majority start to make a choice that's different to yours, that you won't be able to find common ground. I actually think it's more unconscious than that. I think... I think I remember reading an interview with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. It was so good where she said we carve out our identities in our 20s and then we 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 sort of dig our heels into it in our 30s. <laughs> like we so there's a loss of fluidity, I think. Like we we spend our 30s onwards defending the choices that we've made. And I think particularly when it comes to children, not having children is a huge decision. Having children is a huge decision. And I think that the magnitude of that choice is so big. I think it's a way that we comfort ourselves by really digging our heels into this is what's right because the possibility that there isn't a right answer, there's only a right answer for every individual. It's just too much for us to deal with, I think. Like, you know, it's like, I can't really bear when there are two things on the menu that I really want to order. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I have to just convince myself that... My pizza is better than my friend's risotto. I just have to, otherwise it would just be too unbearable. I think as well that that's where tribalism really comes into play because the kind of mothering tribe and the non-mothering tribe has historically been so estranged that there's still, like, the legacy of that division is, I think, going to take a really long time for it not to feel like they are divided camps or to feel like that you're in opposition as women. The journalist Rhiannon Coslett said something really interesting, I think, about this idea that someone else's choice is criticism of your own, when, of course, most of the time it's entirely related to someone else's decision. She wrote, as always, I'm reminded of Amy Poehler's useful phrase in debates such as these, good for you, not for me. 
Articulating your choices as a woman does not automatically mean that you are attacking another woman's choices. It's so boring. And I think this does happen specifically around motherhood. Something I always think of when I think about this kind of dialogue or division is I remember seeing a tweet where a woman said that she'd given birth without painkillers and that she was proud of herself. And someone replied, this was like one day after she'd had her baby. So she was in that sort of slightly crazy newborn baby high and obviously just wanted to like tweet about it, you know, live and let live and all that. And someone replied, you're making people who didn't have drug free births feel bad. And I really sort of ruminated on this. Like, is she? And if she is making other women feel bad, is that her fault? Is it her responsibility to ensure our choices don't make anyone else feel bad? And I'm really torn on this because if it is your responsibility to make sure no one else feels bad or uncomfortable or insecure about your choices, then does that mean that we're encouraging people to remain silent rather than share their lives and their stories and their lived experience? See, I I think that 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 is a very specific example. And I think... I, I don't feel great about that tweet. Oh, okay. Now, this is interesting because I did not have a drug-free birth with either of mm. my children. And that tweet didn't make me feel bad. So I'd love mm. to know why that makes you feel iffy. Because I think at every twist and turn of a woman's life, there are pressures on her to do certain things. And a natural birth is one of them, isn't it? Yeah, and... Often these things, these pressures that are put on women are at the expense of their mental or physical health, be it you have to work these hours, you have to be this thin, you have to... Do you know what I mean? That It's like, mm. it, it's there's already so much demand on women for performance and I, I just don't, I just don't think it's helpful to load that on as well. It's it's sort of uh, another example maybe is the breastfeeding, you know, it, is that there's for for women who breastfeed and it might have been very difficult. It's something they're very proud of, but sharing that might make other people who couldn't breastfeed and want to feel mm. alone. It's so difficult mm. though because I do think you should be allowed to kind of maybe Twitter's just not the place to do it. No, and I think. I think the other thing is just an idea I've had as we've been talking, and it's something I actually mentioned in my first Agony Aunt column. I think societally we've got to get more comfortable with the notion of regret. So I think that regret is seen as the... Well, this kind of keys into everything you write about in your book, Panda. Regret is seen as the byproduct of mistake. Regret is what happens when you don't get it right. So it's a symptom of of wrongness, regret. But the fact is, life is a series of regrets. That is what life is. No one's life can't be touched by choices that retrospectively we realise we would have done differently. I think the problem is when it comes to having kids is that it feels like such fatal decision-making in terms of the stakes. So, for example, I definitely know someone, a woman, an older woman, who's told me she regretted having children. And I also know a woman who said she regrets not having children. I think it feels so enormous to say that out loud. And I think that that's why we're, particularly when it comes to child rearing, I think that's why we're so, we marshal each other so much and we're so judgmental and we're so convinced that our way is the right way because the very notion of regret when it comes to 
making humans, bringing them into the world and bringing, bringing them up is too unthinkable for us. I think as well, it's a particularly difficult discussion to often have because um, it often involves women who are pregnant or have just had children and so are feeling like quite exhausted and confused mm. and sort of renegotiating this identity. So it's loaded. It's loaded with hormones, quite literally. I do think it's great that we're having these conversations, though. And I feel like we're at a time where more and more of these conversations are happening. Yeah, they are. Particularly that conversation about really removing the shame from women who choose not to have children. And for that to be, you know, not an alternative lifestyle, for that to just be a very normal way of living your life. I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but one of my favourite things I've ever heard on this subject is a Radio 4 programme from 2017 in which the journalist Grace Dent and the comedy writer Sean Harries talk about not having children. Grace is someone who's really quite sure she doesn't want them and Sean is someone who has very big doubts on whether she'd want them. It's so, so good, so open and funny and intelligent and sensitive and unjudgmental. I've never heard a conversation of that kind broadcast before and I think about it a lot. So I'll include a link to that if you... It's only 15 minutes, but it's really, really good. And also on an episode of WTF last week, Helen Mirren and Mark Maron talked about why they both decided not to have children and how happy they are that they both didn't have children. And I think that is really important because going back to that regret thing, I think the scaremongering message that I've always heard so loudly and clearly is that people who don't have kids regret it. And it's such a clever and manipulative messaging because as we know, it's something that you can't really go back on past a certain age. So I think it's really important to take out that sort of fatalism around conversations about children and to hear accounts of people who didn't have kids and, you know, are very, very serene and happy with that decision. Emma Gannon's new novel, Olive, which is published on the 23rd of July, lands at a particularly timely moment, uh, I think, given these conversations. Yeah, I'm really, really liking Olive. I think it's so clever that it explores such a such an important topic with such lightness and warmth and I also really like how it explores it not through a monolith but through a selection of female characters who all want for different things and who are each plagued with their own stresses you know I think that's the point isn't it that there are so many different experiences you can have as a woman when it comes to deciding whether you want children or not and and none of them are none of them are stress-free a brief synopsis of Olive. Olive is a 33-year-old woman who doesn't want children. Her three best friends are all experiencing very different journeys. One has three children, one desperately wants and is struggling to have kids, and one is a new mother feeling over her head. And it's not just about fertility. Um, it's about navigating friendships when you have all chosen significantly different life paths actually reminds me a bit of um expectation by anna hope in that regard the idea that you saw you know you would see yourself at a certain point in the future and olive says you know i thought i saw my 30s as me having kids with all of my friends with kids and actually i realized that's not something that i want and and i think it's something that i think a lot of women who previously may have lived pretty similar lives to their friends in their teens or 20s face as they get 
older. Um, and Emma's novel attempts to tackle this, the, the kind of messy bits of renegotiating these identities as the four women try to remain best friends. In a stroke of total fortuitous timing, we actually have an Ask the Hilo this week that complements this discussion. A listener wrote in to say, do you have anything for someone nearing 30 whose partner is keen on kids, but I'm not sure. I have mental health issues and the thought of passing those on or not coping is really the only thing stopping me from being all in. Thanks in advance. I think this letter is really interesting, firstly, because there is such a um, entrenched idea that it's always the woman that wants children and the man that's never sure already. And I think that's interesting. I'm not glad that we got this letter, but I do think that it shows just how um, flattening and kind of a, what a fallacy that idea is, that it's always it's always the woman and it's the man that never wants to, like, hang up his drinking boots and, you know, become domesticated. I want to start by recommending to this listener and any other listeners in the same quandary a piece of writing by Bella Mackey, a previous guest on the Hilo, on this very subject um, that she wrote for The Times, which was titled, Am I Willing to Risk My Mental Health to Have a Baby? So I think it would be a really useful thing to read for um, the listener and other listeners who, who are very much kind of feeling this. Bella has struggled with anxiety and OCD since her 20s. And um, so starting a family with her husband isn't so simple as are you in, are you out? I was taken aback by the naivety of some of the people contributing to dialogue around the piece. There was the suggestion that only people with 100% sound mental health should have children. And I really think we need to do some myth busting here. Very few people have 100% consistent faultless mental health like it might be mostly so but to be a hundred percent I would have thought is pretty rare and the other thing I do want to say is that parenthood is not the preserve of the mother if you're questioning the mental health of motherhood please do look at fatherhood too that said of course, having a child can place enormous strain on your mental health. Your, your mental health is fragile when you are exhausted and hormones are coursing through you. And I think most mothers have experienced that. And not just in motherhood itself, but pregnancy and postpartum too. And it's why I believe that decent maternity leaves are really important, not just for the child, but the mother. And I say that as someone that did not manage with both children. So... I don't want to tell you that having children won't threaten your precarious mental health or what you feel like is a precarious mental health. And I don't think that anyone can promise that it won't. It might not. I know plenty of people who had severe mental health issues in their early 20s and 10 years on have had a baby and were fine. Equally, I know people, and I'm thinking of specific friends as I'm saying this, this is not just kind of empty rhetoric. I know people who have never had mental health problems before having a child. Sometimes there is no rhyme or reason. You cannot predict. What there is is a wealth of support out there if you do choose to go ahead. Just make sure it's the right decision for you and that your partner understands the emotional and physical support that he will need to give you both during pregnancy and when the baby arrives. I think your thoughtfulness should be commended, really. 
I think it's really wonderful that you're thinking about what you've been through and how difficult that's been and, and being cautious about not wanting to someone you love in the future to go through that as well. It's definitely a common fear off the top of my head. I remember Sarah Silverman, the comedian has said that um, her depression is the thing that stopped her from having children. That being said, I'm not saying that's like the right decision at all. I know other people who've suffered from terrible mental health and who actually found childbirth and raising children to be surprisingly not straightforward. It's never straightforward, but not as tumultuous as, as other things that they've been through. But I think the thing is, is, is to just take your time really with this and do a lot of thinking and communicating with your partner and, and reading um, and absorbing other women's experiences. Because I, I really do feel for you because I know I've, I've come into contact with these situations before where one person is absolutely sure they want a baby and the other person isn't. And the problem is you can't compromise on a baby. You can't do half and half. If one person wants to live in the country and one person wants to live in the city, you go, okay, let's live in Kent. <laughs> you know, you live in the suburbs or whatever. <laughs> but you can't have half of kid. Like you, it's you're in or you're out. And it's like mm. a big decision. So it's a hard thing to compromise on when it's, two people um who are in different places so I'm sure that you'll you'll get to a to a place where you're as comfortable as you can be with the decision that you're committing to but until then I would just take the pressure off yourself and take your time and whilst I disagree totally with some of the responses to Bella's piece suggesting that you know you, you definitely shouldn't have a child if you've got any reservations or any history of um, struggling with your mental health equally like wanting to protect your mental health isn't a small thing it's not just like oh if I can get over this hurdle it's a massive thing it's everything about how you experience life and how you feel safe in the world so just because that might be your only hurdle doesn't doesn't make it insignificant um, and might not be something that's easily overcome so we can't really give satisfactory answers because there aren't satisfactory answers with this. There's there's tons and tons of routes and outcomes and you you have to make the decision that feels right to you whilst knowing that there there will be highs and lows because there always are with this kind of thing. Thank you for listening to The High Low. You can write to us by emailing show at gmail.com. You can tweet us at the Low Show. You can buy our merch at thehighlowshop.com where all proceeds go to charity, 50% to Women's Aid, 50% to Show Racism, the red card. We're going to end with a track from the new Haim record, Women in Music Part 3. It's such a good album. It's so healing. I can't stop listening to it. It's beautiful. And I feel like we all need some anthems for healing at this point in our lives and at this time in the world. So enjoy this beautiful music from Haim and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. It takes all that I got Not to fuck this up Won't you live?